And take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to read verses 16 to 36 of Ezekiel chapter 36. And if you don't have a Bible with you, then you can take the one that's on the rack in front of you and you can find Ezekiel 36 on page 857. Uh, let me just officially welcome you. My name is Tom Har. I'm the associate pastor here at Faith Church. Um, if you are a visitor here with us this morning, whether it's your first time or your recent visitor or your first time in a while, um, our senior pastor, Kevin Kozlowski, is actually serving in the nursery this morning. Uh, we're grateful for his uh, a commitment to, uh, to do that on weeks when he is not up here teaching. Um, but he will be available to greet you at the end of the service in the gathering space. And so if you're a recent visitor, he'd love to offer you a cup of coffee, some more information about the church, just straight out the back doors in the, uh, in the gathering space, and you will, you will meet, him, meet him there. So what we've been doing all this spring in Ezekiel is looking at this prophet who lived in the, in the period of time uh, before, during, and after the fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah to the Babylonian Empire. And we've seen how he speaks words of hope uh, to these people. And where we are now in Ezekiel 36 is after the fall of Jerusalem, and we see Ezekiel speaking words that are directed towards the exiles, those people, the people of God, who were taken in exile back to, to Babylon, uh, seemingly feeling as if maybe everything was lost. Everything was, all hope was gone. And that's, that, that's the audience to whom Ezekiel is speaking. So listen, as I read from Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. 
On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is the word of God. Now, I want you to consider for a moment your life as a sentence, a sentence, a propositional statement that would summarize sort of the defining narrative for your, your life, your story, your life summarized in a, in a sentence. What would it say? How would you write it? How would it go? How would you summarize your life? Now, you might say, you know, many of you might say, well, it's too early to tell, <laughs> right? So, some, some of you children might say, I'm only a few words in. Now, some of you might be looking at it and say, my life feels like a run-on sentence at this point. All right, but, but perhaps maybe you're, you're actually looking and say, well, I, I don't know. I kind of hope there's more, though. I, I've gotten to this point, and I, is this it? Is this where I'm left? I sure hope my sentence continues. Now, for the people of Judah at this particular moment in history, their sentence would have been very interesting to write because their nation had been destroyed. Their place of worship had been destroyed. Their very identity as a people was very much in question. They were on the verge of extinction. I mean, the sentence would have started, if they had written the sentence for the, for the nation, their sentence would have started with, with the promises of God. Very hopeful. The, 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 the promises that had been made to Abraham and reiterated to Moses and, the, and, and in the kings, and, and, and it would have been very hopeful, right, that he would love them as their, as their own people, that God would love them as his, as his own people. But with recent events, their sentence would have, would have shifted, right, maybe necessitating some sort of transitional phrase in that sentence, a but, uh, uh, however, right? Maybe something like this. God's promises made to his people through Abraham, solidified in the law of Moses and carried through the historic kingdoms of men like David, were great and glorious, but Israel abandoned God and now lies in ruin, right? That could be the sentence. And there are many people who I'm sure were ready at the time to take that sentence and plop down a big old period right there. Hopeful promises have now ended in ruin, period. Now, how's your sentence? Are you ready to sort of plop down that period? Or though you might not see how, do you desperately hope that somehow, some way, that sentence is going to continue? Ezekiel's message to the exiles in Judah is that it isn't time for the period yet. There's still more words in the sentence. God is not done with the story. So what exactly is the story? What's the message of Ezekiel 36? Well, you heard me read the passage, and, and maybe, maybe you could give it a go yourself, but let me try. Right, let, me, let me just try to summarize it like this. Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's message here, the story, the sentence that he's writing, is that we are condemned by our sin and our disgrace, condemned by our conduct, but we are renewed by our God because he is passionately, passionately focused on the honor and glory of his own name. Let me say it again. The sentence, we are condemned by our conduct, but we are renewed by a God, by God, because he is passionately focused on the glory and the honor of his own name. All right, now that's, that's, that's the message. We're, we're condemned, by, condemned by our conduct, 
but we are renewed by our God. Now let's look at each of those. We're condemned by our, by our conduct. There's no escaping the fact that God is placing the blame for the situation in which the people of Israel find themselves. He's placing the blame where? On them. That's their fault. Verse 17, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. They're condemned by their conduct. So what, exact, what exactly had they done? Well, it's well cataloged in the Bible. And even earlier this year, when we went through the history of the kings of Israel and, and Judah, the series of teaching this past winter, we saw you, there's a lot of background, a lot of justification for, for, for this statement. Because, because the people of God, to whom all of these great promises have been made, had essentially rejected them, rejected the promises and rejected the one who had given them. I mean, there were a few good kings throughout the, you know, the history of the, the kingdom of Judah, but, but mostly not. For the most part, the leaders were corrupt, and, they, were, and they, they existed as part of a culture that failed to care for the weak and the powerless, right? that failed to give generously of their resources to, to God and to, and to their neighbor, that, that didn't obey the, the commands that God had given them, and that openly and shamelessly had set up in their homes, in their hearts, in, in their cities, places of worship for false gods, the gods of the nations, gods of their own making. In essence, they were saying to God, appreciate your offer, thanks, but I'll live as I please. I'll do as I please. I'll worship as I please. Now, you may have picked up on the language that God uses to describe this conduct. What might have seemed to you as we kind of read it, a somewhat maybe inappropriate metaphor? This conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. Right? And as a preacher, I must confess, I tempted to just sort of skip over the statement entirely blame sort of a lack of time or something like that. But I don't, th I don't think we can do that. In fact, I don't think we should do that because rightly understood, this actually shows us something very important about what, what results from this kind of, of conduct. First of all, first of all, we should dispense with the charge that this metaphor is just another example of the archaic and patriarchal oppression of women that, that, that is common in the Bible. Right? Because, because while, only, while only women are mentioned here, this, this reference would take the reader back to Leviticus chapter 15 and, and, this, and all of the ceremonial codes that were put in place to teach the people about the holiness of God. And if you go back to the, to the cleanliness codes in Leviticus chapter 15, you'll see that it deals equally with all kinds of male uncleanness as it relates to discharges and emissions as well. Right? Lots of rules, lots of regulations about discharges and emissions. Leviticus 15 is fascinating reading. I commend it to your afternoon. Right, but seriously, have you ever wondered, why is this stuff in the Bible? Right? Why is it that all these just normal parts of biological life end up rendering someone unclean? Here's why. Right? Uncleanness, in the sense of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, this is important. Uncleanness was not necessarily a moral category. Right? Ceremonial law, uh, the, the, it, many of the things that were, that were not inherently sinful caused someone to be designated, often for just a period of time, to be unclean. Now, in, the category of un, uh, of, of, in this category of uncleanness, contact with a, with a dead person or the loss of bodily fluids, that's the category in which the, the ceremonial law puts this. In, 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 the, ca the, in the case of this, this category, the loss of bodily fluids, blood or otherwise, symbolized conduct, contact with the, with the realm of death. Right? Blood and bodily fluids were the, were the stuff of life. And God wanted to communicate that in their loss, we should be reminded 
of the death that results when we are away from the presence of God. And so that's what happened when, when someone was, was ceremonially unclean. They were removed from, the, from the, the demonstrated presence of God. They were removed from the, from the community for a period of time. Now, not in these cases because what happened to them was inherently sinful, but because it was a visual image of the loss of the life-giving presence of God. That's the metaphor. Now, it, you might have chosen a different metaphor, right? If, if you were God or you were living in ancient you know, ancient Israel thousands of years ago, but you're not living in ancient Israel thousands of years ago, and you're not God. So for a second, just grant him the use of the metaphor of his choice, and instead focus on what the metaphor is actually trying to do here. Because what God is saying is that this conduct of Israel, they're saying to him through centuries of behavior, we'll live as we please, we'll do as we please, we'll worship as we please, right? This conduct what it does is it results in their choosing to align themselves with the realm of death. They're saying by their conduct that they would prefer to be considered unclean, outside the camp, away from God. That's what God wants us to see. And then take a second and focus on how your own conduct and your own attitudes might be saying pretty much the same thing to God. Thank you very much, God, but truthfully, you're welcome to hang around in the background, but I've got this. I'll do as I please. I'll say as I please. I'll worship as I please. I'll live as I please. Because when you say that, what God is saying is you're condemning yourself. You're cutting yourself off voluntarily from the presence of God, from the source of life, and choosing, though you may never have thought it that way, to align yourself with death. And every one of us have have done that. All of humanity suffers under the illusion that our lives would somehow be better if we were the ones who were in charge, that we were our own sovereign. That's what the Bible calls sin. And so it isn't shocking then that if, if that is what someone is voluntarily choosing, then the just response of God in judgment, the, the very just appropriate response to that kind of approach to him is to give the people the very thing that they said that they wanted to be outside the realm of God's authority. And so he exiles them. He removes them from the temple. He removes them from their, from their land. And we deserve the very same thing. The just consequences of our sin is to be outside the camp, to be removed from God's presence. And it's tempting, as I said, to wonder if maybe, maybe the sentence just ends here, historically. Put the period down. But what Ezekiel is saying is the sentence, though, is not over. It seems like it's over. Maybe it should be over, but it's not over. No period here. About five years ago, back in 2013, a young woman named Amy Buell started a movement called Project Semicolon. It came out of a very difficult childhood for, for her. Amy's father had committed suicide. She herself was the victim of abuse. She struggled with severe depression, with thoughts of suicide. But she credits God with a strength to persevere and to see that her past did not define her and that her sentence was not over. So she went to social media. She shared her, her painful story. She encouraged others, and she started promoting the use of a semicolon. Right? And what she said was, is the reason why she did this is because a semicolon is used when the author could have chosen to end the sentence but chose not to. 
that the sentence up to that point would have been complete. It could have stopped right there. And the author could have ended the sentence there, but chose not to. So instead of a period, puts a semicolon and continues on. She says it's her way of saying, visually, I'm not done. Story's not over. And the message of God through Ezekiel doesn't end with condemnation. There's no period here. We're condemned by our conduct. That's point number one. But semicolon, we are renewed by our God. Verse 21, we see that this whole situation, this conduct of God's people and the resulting condemnation that it brings, we see this whole situation causes God to have concern. Now, interestingly, he doesn't feel this concern. He says, specifically about the people of Israel, he's concerned about his own holiness and his own reputation. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, regardless of the motivation, we're going to focus on what this concern motivates God to do. Verse 24, what's he do? Because he's concerned. He's going to take his scattered people and he's going to bring them back to their own land. He's going to bring them back into his presence. Verses 33 and 34, the towns are going to be resettled. The cities are going to be fortified. The land is going to be fruitful again. It's going to bring forth crops. The flowers are going to bloom. Now, isn't that beautiful? Think of that yourself, for yourself. If that analogy holds, if the analogy holds, and I think I think the Bible clearly tells us that it does. If the analogy between Israel's rebellion against God and our sin, if that analogy holds, then that means that our restoration follows in exactly the same way. It means that God has devised a plan that goes beyond the semicolon and promises that the removal from God's presence, though perfectly just, is not the end of the sentence. This is tremendous news. But if we're honest we should at least ask, how is that possible? Because it isn't as if God can just relax his standard of holiness. The unclean, which we would be, can't be allowed in the presence of God. So how is it possible? How can we, as unclean people, be allowed in the presence of a perfectly clean God? Well, we have to be cleaned. It's possible because the restoration in view here is much deeper than just the restoration of outward things, physical land, physical cities. The restoration, the renewal that's talked about here, even more fundamentally, happens at an inner spiritual level, at a heart level. Look at verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. The water of purification, the sprinkling of clean water. Now, this is the water that was used in the purification rites of, of ancient Israel, just plain water. But But our uncleanness requires something more than just just plain water would would do. Something else has to happen because the inner dirt has to be be removed as well. Now, centuries later, Jesus would sit down at a a well with a sinful outcast woman in Samaria who, who was part of a race that would have been considered unclean outside the camp of of God. A woman who might have had every reason to believe that her sentence was effectively over, that the period should be plopped down right where she was. And he'd sit with her, and with compassion, he'd offer her instead a semicolon. It's in John chapter 4. And he, and he asks her for a drink, and she has no idea who he was. And he said, look, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, she's completely confused by what, by what Jesus means, but he said to her that he was offering her much more than just physical water. 
He says what he's offering her is a water that if she were to drink of it would become in her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Imagine that. A water that is able to quench eternal thirst. A water, a water that is able to satisfy all of our deepest needs. A water that is able to cleanse not just sin on the outside, but sin on the inside. And critically, the way that that water comes is by the man who is offering it willing to become thirsty himself. I remember Jesus on the cross said, one of the things he said, I'm thirsty. Now, without doubt, certainly he was physically thirsty, but there was something much deeper than that going on. He was experiencing what we deserve to experience, the thirst that we deserve. And by that experience himself, by his willingness to endure what we deserve, being outside the camp, experiencing the lack of water, what he does is, what it does is enable him to be able to offer to us a living water, a water that we can have because he himself was voluntarily willing to forego it. And as a result, that cleansing water is something that only Jesus can offer. And that's the cleansing to which Ezekiel points. But further, along with that, God tells us that he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. Keep reading, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, heart and spirit. Here, there are two terms that, that, are, that are describing the inner person. They're not exactly identical, but they're very, they're very similar. They're both describing the, the inside of a, of a person. And what God is saying is that not only does Israel have to have its sin washed away, but it needs to have a transformation of their inner heart and their inner spirit. They need to think differently. They need to act differently. But there's even more. Because verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the spirit of God. This This is the Holy Spirit. God is going to put his spirit in his people and move them to obedience. And not just in a suggestive nudge kind of way. He's going to make it happen. So do you see how he completes the sentence? We are condemned by our conduct, but we are washed and renewed by our God. When I was reading about Project Semicolon, it was very interesting to see in Amy Buell's biography on, on the website, the credit that she gives to Jesus specifically for inserting that semicolon in the sentence of her life. This is what she says. She says, It is the love of my Savior that empowered me to make a difference and to love the world with a Christ-like love, even when the world hadn't loved me. It is only through God that I'm here to tell my story. Without his love and grace, I know that my story would never have been told. My life would have just been a period right there where it was. But instead, there's a semicolon. That's the message of hope in Ezekiel. Yes, our sin and our disgrace, our conduct, they, they condemn us but it is not the end of the sentence. If you place your hope and your trust in the one to whom Ezekiel points, in the one whose blood washes away your sin, to the one who offers you eternal living water, then the message of Ezekiel does not stop at condemnation. It continues because you're washed and renewed. Now, I added to that sentence that I read, this sort of summary, I added what might have sounded like a sort of a strange kind of point. And I'm sure you got it as you read through. Listen, right, the sentence that I said this passage is, is giving us, the summary, right, we're condemned by our conduct, but we're washed and renewed by, by our God because he is passionately focused on the honor and the glory of his own name. Now, perhaps you picked it up as I read through the passage. Did you notice how God's concern 
is not about, he says, the reputation of the people of Israel. His concern is about what? His own reputation. The reputation of his own name. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it says in verse 21. He's, that's what he's concerned for. And in case you needed it more clearly stated, he says, verse 22, this is before he talks about the renewal. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. And then in verse 32, after he talks about the renewal that he's going to bring, you know, just in case you might have forgotten, he says, I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake. Now, what is up with that? And how can we understand that? Where's the love and the compassion here for us? All of a sudden, the message sounds almost, almost offensive. Wait a minute. He's, he's concerned about himself, first and foremost? Well, first, I mean, we can say, based on lots of other places, we know that the compassion of, of, the compassion of God, we know the compassion of God for his people at this particular moment of history as he seeks to restore his people from, from exile. Just for one example, Isaiah 40. Right? What he tells Isaiah to tell the people is comfort. Give them a message of comfort. Speak to them tenderly, he tells Isaiah. Right? So it isn't that God isn't concerned about the people when he's bringing about this restoration. It isn't, that isn't what he's saying. But what it is saying is that his concern for his people is not the primary reason. It's not the primary ground. It's not the primary justification for the restoration and the renewal that he's going to bring. See, what we need to do is we need to see this in, in terms of, of literary form is what's referred to as a relative negation. And, it, and it's, it's pretty common. In other words, in order to indicate the priority of one thing over another, you affirm the one thing and you deny the other. Right, so, for, for example, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, very common quoted verse. God says to his people, very simply, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? Mercy I like, sacrifice I don't. That's what it seems like he's saying. Now, if you look at it, though, in context and you think about it, he's not abolishing the sacrificial system when he says that. He's not saying to the people, I don't want you to offer sacrifices. I don't want you to obey the law. He's saying in that sentence, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. By affirming the one and denying the other, he's by relative comparison saying this is more important than the other thing. He's saying that the more important foundation for obedience is not just simply the outward sacrifice, but it's the inner motivation of your, of your heart. Now, in a similar way, what God is saying here is that his action to forgive Israel's sins and return them to the land, he's not saying that they don't demonstrate real, real mercy and love toward Israel. But what he is saying is that God best displays his love toward his people when he prioritizes, first and foremost, the protection and the honor of his own name and reputation. In fact, very practically speaking, without that being the primary reason for our renewal, without that being, without God's commitment to his own holy name and reputation first and foremost, we can't assume the secondary commitment exists. In other words, grounding the basis of our forgiveness, of our renewal, of our restoration, grounding that on God's faithfulness, to his own name is our greatest, our only reason for real hope because any other ground, any other basis for our renewal is ultimately something that is shifting, unsteady, something that we can't really put our confidence in that would leave us uncertain. Because think about this. If the foundation of God's restoration is my lovability, right, then I'm in trouble. If my ultimate hope rests primarily on his emotion directed towards me, however true that might be, it will always leave me somewhat in doubt because I'll always have reason 
right reason to a degree to doubt whether or not I'm really worthy of that love. But if God is saying instead that he loves me, he promises to restore me, he promises to wash away all of my dirt and all of my shame, to give me a new heart, to change me from the inside out, and he bases that on his promise that he will be unchanging, unswerving in his commitment to the righteous reputation of his own name, then I can take that to the bank. And so these statements, they should not offend us. Right? That God would base our rescue first and foremost on a commitment to himself, that should more than anything, that should strengthen us. And let me close by making it, making it very practical this way. I had seen this story about Amy Bliol and Project Semicolon about a year ago, first time I saw the story. And this week, as I was thinking through Ezekiel 36, I was reading the story again. I was doing a little more research into Project Semicolon, and, and I was shocked to see that just about a month after I had read the original article about Amy, she died. And even more tragic than that, she died by taking her own life. And I confess that my initial reaction as it related to this sermon was, that kind of destroys the whole point of, of the story. Maybe I shouldn't use it. Until it became clear, as I thought about it a little bit more, that actually I was the one who was missing the point of how Amy's story connected to Ezekiel chapter 36. Look, I don't know Amy's heart, but in the midst of all the great pain and the struggle that characterized her entire life, if I just take her statement at face value, that it was the sustaining love of Jesus, her Savior, that was her lifeline in the midst of the storm, then this truth that we've just been talking about, this truth of the basis of our restoration and renewal being found in God's commitment to his own name, then that truth becomes all the more relevant. Now, I want to make this very clear in what I'm about to say, right? that suicide is never what God wants us to do. It's never the way out, no matter how desperate you might feel. Right? And if in any way you are struggling with thoughts about suicide, if this is something that you're, you're thinking about, then you need to talk to someone. Right? You can see me, you can see Pastor Kozlowski, you can see Pastor Mike. Come and talk to us, and we will help you get to the help that you need. But I also want us to see that even in Amy's case, as terribly wrong as her choice was in so many ways, that if she belonged to Jesus, then because God bases our restoration on his rock-solid commitment to his own name, then there is absolutely no way that we can slip from his grip. That's the implication of Ezekiel 36. Now, if the primary foundation for Amy's restoration is based on a commitment between God and Amy, then our reason for hope might be there, but it's shakier because she claimed to hold on to the name of Jesus and the offer of restoration, but in the end, she couldn't. Her fingers slipped. But if the primary foundation for Amy's restoration is based on a commitment between God and himself, then there is absolutely nothing that a moment of weakness, however sinful in its momentary action, can do to cut that lifeline. Right? Because God will not forsake himself. He will not turn on his own name. And because of that, even when we attempt by our own will to grab the pen from God's hand and prematurely put a period at the end of our sentence, he reaches down and he eternally changes that period to a semicolon. We are condemned by our conduct, but we are washed and renewed because God is passionately focused on the honor 
and the reputation of his own name, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in great need because because we recognize in ourselves the deserving disgrace that is ours. Lord, it is our own conduct. But Lord, help help us to see that in the confession of that, we have our greatest hope. That you have promised to renew and to restore, to wash and to clean, to make right those who are in pain, those who feel disgrace, those who are tempted to think that lives are at an end. Help us to see, Lord, that you are the one who continues the sentence. Help us to praise you for it. Work in every heart that is here, Lord, that we might go forth with the power and the knowledge that this message brings. For we pray in that beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.